Parshas Kisisa. Rechanneling wayward passions. Let me explain. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. Most of all, spiritually. We all have our struggles. We all have our areas to which we, in which we oftentimes succumb to the Eight Sahara. And the question is, how do we deal with that? Do we demonize ourselves? Do we look at our urges and drives as fundamentally evil, terrible? And this question is somewhat rhetorical, because we all know that's not a healthy approach. It's much healthier if a person recognizes what their passions are and find a way to channel them to Kedusha, to a holy place, rather than to a impure place. It's not only a more effective approach, this rechanneling rather than demonizing self, but it's also embracing of our humanity, accepting ourselves for who we are and that we are fundamentally good. We just have to find the appropriate expression for ourselves and all of our drives. That is the healthy approach to tshuva, rechanneling, which I would like to espouse and develop tonight. And the reason why this is a noteworthy issue this week in this parasha, Parsha's Kisisa, is because this is the parasha of Egel. This is the parasha where the Jewish people commit the sin, the national sin, and engage in the repentance. This is the repentance story, as evident by the fact that the very first Yom Kippur is experienced here culminating with Hashem forgiving the Jewish people and the building of the Mishkan. So the whole issue of chet and tshuva is essential to our parsha, and therefore it is assumable that the right approach, hopefully this healthy approach we are espousing, the rechanneling passions rather than demonizing self, will emerge powerfully from a sophisticated, rich development of the parsha, So let's sink our teeth right in. I would like to begin with the notion that the Mishkan is a kapara for the ego and understand how the Mishkan atones for ego. This view is advanced by the Medrash, cited by Rashi in this week's parsha, and explains very well the formulation of our parsha as a sedra, because our parsha contains both. The beginning of the parsha deals with the final aspects of the commandments of the Mishkan, how to construct it, and how the donation should work, and then ends with the Egel. So as a cohesive parsha, well, the Mishkan in the beginning is the antidote to the Egel at the end. Now, this view, while midrashic, and while articulated by our the unification of our parsha is certainly not the pshat, certainly not the simple read. You might recall in our share two weeks ago we developed that not only the sequencing of Tzivay HaMishkan, the commandments of the Mishkan, before the Egel, but many textual proofs we cited point to the fact that 
Hashem actually gave the command to give Mishkan on a level of Pshat before there ever was an Ega. That is the view on a level of Pshat. However, on a level of Drash, the Mishkan serves as a post-Egel institution to be Mechaper for the Egel. Now, this sort of dissonance between Pshat and Drash is not a discrepancy, but is rather two realms of Torah that enrich each other. Seeing the Mishkan on one level as an idyllic sanctuary of a people who has never sinned, and on another level as a way of reaching out to a Jewish people after they sin and bringing them back. Well, it is that mix, that blend, which is exactly what the Torah wants to portray. Because Mishkan, and for that matter, all institutions and mitzvot in Yiddishkeit, are not unidimensional, but rather can be appreciated in multiple ways. Mitzvot grow with us. We internalize mitzvot in different ways, depending where we're at. I will experience Lulav and Esrogon Sukkot in a given way one year, and in a given way the next year. The mitzvah doesn't change, but I change. And within the mitzvah, I can access and mine and unearth the relevant message to me. So likewise with the Mishkan. A Mishkan, on one level, on a level of Pshat, precedes Egel. On a level of pshat is something idyllic to a people who has not sinned. But yet it always contained and possessed within it the voice, the resonance to, to reach out to a people when they have sinned as well. Hashem had that embedded in the Mishkan as well. So that Mishkan talks to the Jewish people in a different way after Chara'ekel. And hence, Drash is reflecting what a Mishkan evolves into, what a Mishkan becomes after Chara'ekel, now as it serves as a way to reach out to a spiritually battered people. And this is true of all mitzvahs. When we are spiritually struggling, suddenly a mitzvah speaks to us in our compromised spiritual state, because mitzvahs are not simply speaking to the ivory tower. Mitzvahs are addressing the people in the spiritual foxholes as well. I was thinking about this a bit this past Shabbos. This past Shabbos, I was with my family in New Orleans, Louisiana. Small Jewish community there. Certainly small from community there. And in New Orleans, there is much revelry and celebration their famous Mardi Gras, which happens, which is not necessarily conducted in the most Torah-Dika upright way, to say the least. And the rabbi there mentioned, that speaking to his congregation, that we New Orleanians, we have to find a way to find some of that Mardi Gras in Judaism, whether in the revelry of a Simchas Torah or the like. Some of that urge, some of that drive... The Mardi Gras, which might be perceived as fundamentally impure. Well, that's the reality if you're living in New Orleans. So find a way to embrace mitzvos to satisfy Jews in a Mardi Gras state. That would be a modern-day expression of what is going on here with the Mishkan and the fusion of Pshat and Drash. How a Mishkan now takes on new meaning to a people once they have sinned and they have different spiritual needs. Struggling with their own Mardi Gras, you might say. 
Now, to bring this all to life, this notion of the Mishkan as a kapar for the Egel, to see this as more than a medrash, but actually as a fundamental perspective embedded in the text itself. I would like now to trace a fresh new pattern which will make clear to us how the Mishkan was experienced in real time. That's the people in real time, it was so apparent. Yes, we are redeeming ourselves from the ego, that all, that all of the skeletons in the closet of the ego are now being laid to rest. And to do this, I would like to turn to next week's parasha, Parashas Vayakel, when the Jews begin to actually construct the Mishkan, and to see the countless deja vus, the power of the pattern, how clue after clue, there are so many call-outs to the ego of the past, but now in a healthy, redeemed Mishkan. Let's have a look. For starters, Parshas Vayakel next week begins with the verse Vayakel, Moshe has called Aspen Yisrael. Moshe gathered the Jewish people. Well, it's interesting to note that that very term, kehelah, gathering, appeared in the Egel in our parsha. When it says, vayikol ha'amalarim, the people gathered as a, in a mob scene upon Aaron, pressuring him to build the Egel. That's a gentle first echoing clue. But the clues mount. For example, retur- when we return to the vayakal narrative next week, not only does Moshe gather the people, but what is the first thing he tells them with regard to the Mishkan? He tells them, Lo do not ignite fire. Well, to this people living under the shadow of the ego, fire connotes something very, very negative. It was into the fire that they threw and flung the gold of the ego, which formed into the calf. So the people are gathering, and he once again speaks of fires. He speaks of the fires which will build the Mishkan, which they are to utilize for that purpose six days a week when they construct the Mishkan, but not on the seventh. And not only that, there's another clue. Because later we find in Parshas Vayakel, when the Jewish people actually begin to donate towards the Mishkan, it describes Vayavo HaNashem Al Man came upon woman. Man joined woman. For what purpose? To donate various jewelry, including vanazem, nose rings. Well, this scene, man joining woman to donate nose rings, is so powerful an echo of the Egel scene in our parsha, Because Aaron told, directed the people in so many words, Parku nizme zahav asher ba'azni nishashechem. I want you to approach your wives and remove the golden nose rings that here we have in the Eagle story. Man, man approaches woman to attain her nose rings to build the Eagle. Well, now in the redemption of Ayakel, man upon woman donates these nose rings not to Eagle, but towards the noble purpose of Mishka. Now, each of these clues within themselves are suggestive clues, but as a pattern, 
what's coming together here is by amassing all of these parallels is a very clear indication that the ego was a deja vu of sorts. A deja vu of the ego, but now a deja vu of reframing. Think back to that ego, but now you could do it right. Now you could revisit these features in a more positive light. And another indication of this deja vu effect can be seen in terms of who are the primary figures in the Mishkan. On one hand, you have Bitzalel ben Uri ben Chor. The Torah describes Bitzalel, the craftsman of the Mishkan, as a descendant of Chor. And on the other hand, you have Aaron. Aaron is the Kohen Gadol who worships in the Mishkan. Now let's put Aaron next to Bitzalel's grandfather, Chor. Aaron and Chor as a duo, Chazal tell us figured in the Ego story, that it was Chor and Aaron in Moshe's absence who were supposed to serve as the guides to the Jewish people. And when the people sought to build the Ego and Chor stopped them, the people killed Chor, and hence Aaron had to come up with a viable solution here. So it's a truly an unmistakable coincidence that Aaron and Hor, these two primary figures in the Yegel story, now re-enter the fray. Hor is not around in real life, so he has to enter the picture via his grandson Betzalo. But Hor via Betzalo and Aaron now come together in the Mishkan, so clear to the Jewish people, Tikkun, we're now going to do this thing right. Parenthetically, I will note that Betzalel ben Uri ben Hur's role as craftsman versus Aaron's role as the actual worshiper in the Mishkan, I think reflect as well this attempt at Tikkun, this attempt to take the eagle of the past and now do it better. Because Hur, on one hand, represents immunity to the eagle. Hur was the one who stood up to the eagle and said, no, not over my dead body. He literally is martyred over that cause. So therefore, it is his grandson who builds the Mishkan. It is his grandson who creates the environment. An environment of Tikkun must be pure. Chor creates that atmosphere via Betzal of immunity from the ego, of purity. Once you have that pure environment, even those with culpability can find redemption in a spiritually safe Mishkan. So Aaron, who carries culpability for the Mishkan, for the Ego, I'm sorry, it was Aaron who crafted the Ego under the pressure of the people. He now can enter and worship in the Mishkan, in a Mishkan built by Hord's grandson, to show how even those cap- culpable for the Ego now find protection in a pristine environment of the, of the Mishkan. So here we have a, a general pattern of Tikkun in Mishkan for the Egel and the promise for redemption. This promise, which is the very issue of our parsha, this opening Yom Kippur story, it's the sort of redemption which we all seek in our personal lives, facing down our, each of our very real shortcomings. One more twist in this regard, in tracing in the text, this revelation in the text, to see the Midrashic view of Mishkan as a kapar for the Egel 
embedded in the text. One final twist I would like to share before we move on. Viego was a multi-dimensional sin. But one aspect, or at least one parenthetical element to the Egel, was the corrosion of the relationship between husband and wife. Shalom bias issues always creep up in major sense. We have the women on one hand, as the Medrash notes, resisting Chara Egel, and the men on the other hand, pushing the Egel, and even forcibly removing their wives' jewelry to build the Egel. Well, I would like to suggest the tikkun of that aspect, the tikkun of the breakdown of relationship between man and woman in the building of the of the in the crafting of the egel, is in the crafting of the mishkan in next week's parsha. When, as we traced, man and woman came together, and not only did man and woman come together, they came together in donation of the very pieces of jewelry over which they had previously tussled in the time of the egel. As evidence in the Pasuk of Parshas Vayakali read before, Vayavo Hanashim Al Hanashim, men joined women, to donate nose rings and the like. That's a powerful Pasuk in itself. So, contrasting with the ego, man, woman, and nose rings, but now all in unison for a positive purpose. And I think there are more intricate really elegant clues to this, highlighting that when man and woman came together to donate those golden nose rings, that was intended as a kapar for the Chet HaEgel, because you'll notice that unlike regarding the, these gold jewelry, this gold jewelry, regarding the donation of silver, it doesn't mention man and woman. It just speaks in general terms there in Parshas Vayakel, Kol Meirim Trumas Kesef, all those who donated silver, unachoshas, and copper. Silver and copper is non-gender specific. People donated copper and silver. It is specifically concerning the gold where it speaks of man and woman coming together. And similarly, regarding the materials, the fabrics... While man and woman do appear, man and woman do not appear in unison regarding the fabrics, but appear separately. In Pasuk Chaf Gimel, again, this is all in Paraklamet Hay of Ayakal Pasuk Chaf Gimel, it speaks of Kol Ishashanim Seitu Trelas, every man who had Trelas, and then separated by a Pasuk only in Chaf Hay, it's Pasuk Chaf Hay, it speaks of the women and their, and their fabrics. Kol Slave the woman spun fabrics. Man and woman, while they do appear regarding fabrics, are separated. So we have, regarding various metals, silver and copper, man and woman do not even appear gender-specific. And regarding fabric, man and woman do not appear together. This is significant for the point of contrast that it is only concerning the gold in Paraklamet Hei Pasach the donation of gold jewelry, which stands out now. Fear alone, man and woman appear together. Well, this contrast, this contrast between the way the Torah presents the donation of the golden jewelry, the way it presents none of the other donations, specifying man and woman, but man and woman in unison, now emerges powerfully in contrast, pointing to this understanding. The Mishkan was a multidimensional 
kapar for the ego, including now bringing man and woman together with shalom and shalva. So yet again, we see that textual niceties, textual nuances, where it mentions man and woman, where it doesn't, and how they mention, these are not coincidences, but part of a elegant tapestry woven by the author of the text here, the Rabbana Sha'olam, pointing to this magnificent message of the Mishkan as a kapar for the Egel, man, woman, come together, donating the jewelry now harmoniously for a positive purpose. All right, so until now, we studied in general terms. Mishkan as a kapar for the Egel. And the great promise of tshuva contained therein. And how a mitzvah such as the Mishkan takes on new meaning to a people once they've sinned. Now we understand the Mishkan in a different light than it was understood before. Now we understand the Mishkan as reaching out to us in our depraved state. And this is what we Jews always do with mitzvahs. We see how the mitzvah talks to us and presently, including in our present limitations, as evident by my example before that the New Orleans rabbi mentioned the Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras Jews need to find a way mitzvah speaks to them. The Jewish people finds the way to find a way for the Mishkan to speak to them in light of their present needs. But now I would like to focus our study a bit. I want to understand better what exactly the Jewish people's struggle was at the time of the Ego. What drove them to do such a thing? And thereby appreciate how the Mishkan responded to that to their need, how the Mishkan taught them to rechannel the wayward passion of Ego. What was it going on with the Ego? What was that spiritual angst which a Mishkan corrected? And we struggle with this question, this question of distilling what the Jewish people struggle at the time of the Egel, because we find it so strange. And not only do we find that Vodazar idolatry, generally, generally speaking, strange, but particularly the Egel, the worship of a golden calf, it seems idiotic to us. So we need to find a way to relate to their struggle, and in a sense, see it as a our struggle, a struggle that is part of our way of thinking. And then we can understand how Mishkan is satisfying their angst. So for starters, it's very clear the people did not believe that the statue of the golden calf was itself a god. That's idiotic. But moreover, you see in the people's statement that's not what they mean. Because when the calf is created and they and the, they, they say or the Ere of Ralph say, This is the God who took you out of Egypt. They can't mean the calf per se. The calf took you out of Egypt? The calf was just molded from the flame. So certainly this is the God who took you out of Egypt. Does not mean the calf per se. But rather the God who took you out of Egypt now could be accessed via the calf. And presumably they're talking about Hashem. Mind you, this is the people who experience Nevoah prophecy hearing Hashem speak to them at Harsinai. So this is your God who took you out of Egypt. 
via the calf that are coming to relate to Hashem. They're struggling with the notion of an intermediary, which is wrong, but not totally irrational. And to develop this a bit further, this understanding that what they're seeking is an intermediary to Hashem rather than idolatry per se, we have a well-known commentary of the Ramban. The Ramban understands that the Jewish people, lacking Moshe's direction, lacking Moshe the prophet, their, what they perceived as their human portal to Hashem, they wanted another portal to Hashem. And we have this concept called the Merkava, the divine chariot, which Yecheskel Hanavi speaks about. That Hashem has various angelic forces he uses to relate to the world, represented by four creatures, four chayos. One is an Adam, there's the face of a man in heaven. Obviously, this is a, these are allegorical expressions. Number two, you have a face of an Arya, you have the face of a lion, with its symbolisms of how Hashem relates to the world. Then you have a Shar, you have an ox, which carries different symbolisms how Hashem relates to the world. And then you have a Nesher, an eagle, with its symbolisms of how Hashem relates to the world. So they wanted to tap into the power called Shar, the power called the ox, and hence they created an Egel, a calf, from the ox family, not as idolatry, says the Ramban, but as their vehicle to connect to Hashem. So what they are seeking is not to replace Hashem, what they are seeking is to access Hashem. In the absence of Moshe, their human portal, Hashem seemed distant to them. They wanted that access route. Now immediately when we frame it this way, we begin to see the sin of our ancestors, the Egel, in a totally different light. We certainly become much more forgiving. We at least begin to understand them more. We all struggle with relating to Hashem, Hashem the omnipotent one, Hashem the metaphysical one, the one who's beyond. One who I can't see, one that I can't touch, one that I struggle to feel. How can I, in my physical, corporeal body, with my human needs, relate to a God who's beyond? This has been a common human challenge to create visual imagery not to be God, but to represent God. So you have some connection to him in the human sensory realm. Now this is a slippery slope. This is very dangerous. Because the moment you create physical representation, you begin to adulterate Hashem in your consciousness. You're bringing him down to the human realm, to the physical realm, as opposed to understanding him for what he is as beyond but, but we appreciate that struggle, that struggle to bring Hashem into the human relatable term, the visual realm. And that's what the Jewish people are struggling with here. And perhaps there's another dimension to it. Not only is it the visual representation in the ego which they need, but in crafting the ego, in the artistry, in the self-expression of craft in the ego, there is also a satisfaction. We humans have a need to express ourselves and particularly to express ourselves in religion, in our connection to Hashem. 
Well, in making the symbolism of God in their image, in the imagery which they perceived, well, that's again on yet another level, making Hashem more relatable, making him relatable to you, taking Hashem, the one who is beyond, and bringing him into your life, your consciousness, by giving him the form that you would envision, the form that is the work of your hands, your creative drive. Now again, both the actual idolizing creation of an image to give visual representation and also the notion of artistic expression, making the representation in your creative image is a very, very dangerous thing to do. But, but it's a relatable struggle. One that on some level we all have. We all are in our Vodas Hashem need creative expression. And we all, especially the more artistic among us, seek to create a Hashem consciousness through our own personal artistic expression. And perhaps that is the symbolism of the goal, of the metal, of the metal of the ego. Metal is stressed as the substance for the ego, meaning unlike in the Western world, where we generally talk about the golden calf and we speak simply about the gold, you will find a repeated expression in the Torah highlighting the word masecha. It was a metal calf. Vayaseu ego masecha, and then Later it says in recounting the event, Asulahem Egel Masecha, a metal eagle, metal eagle, metal calf. And later in our parsha, likewise, in the aftermath of Egel, when it's giving the people directions how to behave along with the second Luchos, it says, Elohei Masecha, metal gods do not make for yourself. And it's so clear that that is yet another stress in the word Masecha, metal gods, in terms of steer away from the ego, the Torah sees the ego particularly as a metal god. What is significant about metal? Don't make a metal god? Well, say don't make an idol in general. What is special about a metal god? What is the, was this challenge and this drive, the Sayyid, to create a metal god? Well, metal is unique in that it is totally formed by man. It is not simply cut and shaped as metal and wood are. But metal is literally fashioned by man in its entirety. The way you make any metal or- ornament is you expose it to the fire and you make an entirely new form about it. You're not just cutting it down to size or as you would carve stone or cut wood, but you're actually making the whole substance. Metal provides the creative expression that the object which, which is created is totally in your image. You, the person, you, the person, are giving it reality. Well, that is the stress of the ego. Masechan, everything Masechan metal represents, it's man's drive to create a representation of God in his image. For man to find his own personal resonance, an expression in his idea of God. That is what the ego is all about. And now from this perspective, from this very understanding perspective of the Jewish people and what they're struggling with, 
to make God accessible and relatable, we can begin to understand the role of the Mishkan as a kapara quite deeply. Because the Mishkan was also creating of images. In fact, in the Holy of Holies, the images, the Kruvim, consisted of gold. And the deja vu is impossible not to note. Once again, a great crafting project throughout the Mishkan. And a crafting of even gold statues. Well, what that must mean to the people is there's a way to do this. There's a way to satisfy the need. The need for artistry, self-expression, even visual image. But not Khalilah pre-representation of Hashem himself but rather a means of inspiration to direct us towards Hashem in heaven. And that's a subtle but very important difference. They would never worship the Kruvim as they worship the eagle. God forbid. The Mishkan as a whole was an inspiration to turn towards Hashem. And that's what we do to this very day with our own artistic expression and visual images, whether in a beautiful show and all the aesthetic sense therein. Inspires us towards Hashem. It responds to our need to find stimuli in our world to reach heavenward. This perspective, this perspective of seeing a deja vu in the creation of images, in the crafting project of the Mishkan, so similar to the underlying drive of Ego, but with the critical difference of not representing God, but pointing us towards Hashem, is powerful within itself. And brings to life a very interesting medrash in Parsha Shmini, in Sefer Vayikra, in the story of when the Mishkan was actually inaugurated. We know in that story, Aaron, when he was inducted to be calling God along that day, when he was really stepping up to the plate to begin the Avodah, struggled in Parsha Shmini with stigma, with a feeling of unworthiness. I made the ego. I should be the one to worship. Well, the Medrash further elaborates that scene in a very seemingly, well, certainly striking passage tells us that when Aaron stared at the Mizbeach, the Mizbeach, the altar, which had projections on top of it, called Kronos, well, it says when he stared at that Mizbeach with its chronos, with its horns, he thought of the horns of the Egel and he blanched. Now, at first glance, it seems like a totally loose connection. The Mizbeach has horns and the Egel has horns. Aaron, why are you disturbed this way? And perhaps on one level we'll say, this sort of struggle with 
stigmatizing cross images is classic of survivors of torment or of difficult events that when they'll see even the slightest symbols which are somewhat reminiscent of the trauma that immediately evokes all of the negative stuff. It evokes all of the ghosts from the past in their mind. So hence, Karniam is Bayach for no real reason other than trauma become Karniego in Aaron's frightened mind. Perhaps that's one level of interpretation. But I want to give Aaron Akoin more credit than that. This is Aaron Akoin with all of Aaron's perspective. If Aaron is seeing the eagle and the in the the carny eagle and the carny Hamasbeach, there must be something to it. Well, now we understand. Aaron is not delusional at all. When Aaron sees yet another eagle in the in the Mizbeach, and for that matter, I would suggest in the Mishkan in general, he's onto something. He understands that the Mishkan and the Mizbeach were the attempt to take that passion of the eagle. To take that drive of a need for physical imagery, of a need for creative expression in Judaism, and give it kosher form. Give it the form not of representing Hashem himself, but pointing towards Hashem himself. But that's a very slippery slope. This is a very dangerous game, certainly perceived as dangerous by those who suffer the trauma of the eagle Aaron. So when Aaron, when Aaron blanches and shudders, he sees... The eagle and its horns and the Mizbeach with his horns. This is not some baseless analogy. He got it. Aaron actually got the essence of the Mishkan, the essence of the Mizbeach. This was supposed to be a rechanneling of the eagle and everything the eagle was about. This was finding kosher fulfillment for the need, the visual needs, the needs for imagery in religious life. And Aaron's scared to do it. Aaron appreciates the slippery slope. But Aaron ultimately steps up to the plate and does it and accepts. We're going to be able to do this right. We're going to be able to rechannel the wayward passions of the past right and embrace the need for physical expression. Now in a kosher, wholesome way. Not of representing God, but of inspiring us towards Hashem. So here we have in front of us the notion of rechanneling wayward passions of the past. The Egel as a healthy redemption for the Egel, coming alive in front of our very eyes. And we really have a model how we all could take spiritual struggles and rechannel them. Take the underlying passion which was Latoma and now transfer it Likdusha. And that's how we embrace ourselves and elevate ourselves rather than battle ourselves. One final addendum, one final revelation and addendum to bring our shield full, full circle. While on one hand, Parshas Kisi says we've developed it, Mishkan as a kapara for the ego. On one level, this is a post-chet reaction. That once we've sinned, we've realized we have this need. We have this need for physical expression of the divine in Judaism. 
So now we got to find a way to do it right. Well, the question becomes, do things have to come to this? Do things have to come to sinning with the ego and then realizing we have a spiritual need which now needs to, needs to be fulfilled and then find the rechanneling through the ego? Does it have to be an ex post facto correction? Or might there be a promise to avoid a potential, to avoid an ego entirely? Could we do things right? Could we recognize spiritual needs we have, which can be abused, but hold the drive in check and rechannel the drive like Dusha before it ever becomes an Avera? Can we have that level of self-awareness to know ourselves and know our spiritual needs and therefore direct ourselves and even our so-called wayward drives, Likdusha, before they ever deteriorate with Tum. And I believe we can do that. There is a way to do this. We can find in mitzvos all personal self-fulfillment. Even satisfaction of drives, which, as we said, might seem less than holy. We can find them before we ever go away. And that, too, is brought out magnificently by our pattern in the parasha, by the pattern we've been tracing of the greater pattern of the struggle to find physical expression of the divine. What was behind ego, a need which was only satisfied after the ego, but I'm arguing the Jewish people could have done right without an ego. Because look at this. Or maybe I'll use the hearing, the listening metaphor. Listen with a sensitive ear to the language regarding the ego. When it says, they took the gold, Aaron took the gold from their hand, Vayotzer oso bacheret. Which Rashi translates in one interpretation to mean they formed it, he formed the metal in an engraver in an engravery device. Charet. Charet is an engravery device. He formed the metal in an engravery device. Well elsewhere. We find a very similar term to charet, engravery. And that is, only a few psukim later, when Moshe is going down the mountain with the luchos, and at speak, the Torah describes the luchos. The letters were engraved upon the luchos. Charos. The etymology of this word describing the engraved letters of the Luchos is linked by Rashi back to the word charet, as in the engravery tool used for the ego. They both possess a ches and a resh, one charet with a tas, one charos with a taf. The etymology of the two words is apparently fundamentally one in Rashi's judgment. 
but more than simply a point of Hebrew grammar. There must be something going on here, that the very same term, engravery, used both to describe the ego and also to describe the luchos. And particularly strange, when we appreciate, the luchos here are really the opposite of the ego. The luchos are the holy Torah, which had to be crashed and smashed by Moshe when there was an ego. So you have luchos as the holy potential on one side, and ego as the negative aver on the other side, which seemed, which ought to be colliding with each other. But yet the same general word, chara and charas, engravery, is used to describe both. That's certainly not a coincidence. These two opposing objects, the ego and the luchos, have the very same description. Something is up the divine author's sleeve in this as though blending of the ego and the luchos. Both are engraved. And now indeed we appreciate what the remez is. We appreciate what the divine author is hinting to here. Yes. Hashem is saying, you need physical expression. You need the symbols, the imagery. Well, guess what? You don't need an ego for that. This luchos, which is coming, which Moshe is breaking down the mountain right now, it too has the engravery characteristic, i.e., the issue of the sculpting. Engravery is a sculpting of sorts, sculpting, artistry. You could find that in the luchos, which is supposed to point to the fact that Torah is not simply an idea. Torah has creative, physical imagery as well. Torah lends itself to utilizing our aesthetic senses, to bringing it itself alive through in- engraving, through sculpting. It just has to be done the right way. It has to be done halachic, not giving an image to God, but rather giving an image to mitzvahs, as the luchos are doing, giving an image to the commandments sculpted upon the rock. Yes, mitzvahs we continue to do beautifully until this very day. Hidder mitzvahs, now the fun of the mitzvahs. This whole need for visual, for an aesthetic sense in Judaism, Everything the Jewish people craved at the Ego. Well, I believe we're being told by this undertone in the text, Charet, Charas, you have that all in the original. The Torah mitzvah Hashem is giving is perfect, satisfies all our raw religious needs, all of our personal challenges and struggles and longings and yearnings. You just have to find it. Believe in the original, believe in the authentic. You'll find everything you need there. You don't need to stoop to the Egel and then a kapara after the fact with the Mishka. There would have, there would have, could have, should have been a way to do it right. To find physical imagery and aesthetic sets in Aluchos and in the other institutions of Judaism. The t- Torah and mitzvahs are perfect. They provide for all of our needs without stooping to hate. If we just open up our eyes and find the touch points to the mitzvahs. May we all find a way to channel all parts of ourself, the totality of ourselves, even those passions which some would call wayward or the like. May we find a way to channel them all, Tekdusha. 
to know that Hashem wants us to worship him with a totality of ourselves. Anything we feel, any drive we have, there's a way to do it right. This is what Parshas Kisisa is teaching us. This is what the response to Egel and the positives, be it Mishkan after the fact, be it the Luchos potential before the fact. This is what Parshas Kisisa is teaching us. Embrace the whole self. Channel the whole self and all of your passions to Kedusha. Thank you very much.